This is the Photo Experiment Podcast, brought to you by PhotoBiz X. Let me introduce today's guest, Ming Thien from Malaysia. In his words, he's a photographer first, a philosopher slash writer second, a commercial photographer third, a teacher fourth, and a blogger a distant fifth. In saying that, he has one of the most popular photography blogs on the net, and if that's his distant fifth, you can imagine how good a photographer this guy is. After receiving a master's degree in physics at the age of 16 and a successful career in business following that, Ming became a full-time photographer in 2011. He's been named one of the world's best street photographers today and appears to be working more and harder than any photographer I know, yet he says it doesn't feel like work. I'm excited to have him with me now. Ming, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I uh, I can live up to the introduction of yours. (laughs) (laughs) I know you've been asked this before, but why photography? Why leave that career behind to pursue photography? I think it's the tangible creation. Everybody who's been in a creative industry where you have a product at the end of the day or something you can say, look, I did this, I made this, it gives you a certain degree of satisfaction and a certain degree of of pride, I guess, of completion, you know, that sense of I've actually finished something rather than I've done a little bit here, sent some slides off, fired off some emails, and, you know, that's kind of my year. It's it's just not very satisfying. I want to make stuff, you know, and given the limitations of my own abilities, I think it's easier for me to make things in visual arts and write, you know, rather than, say, you know, be a sculptor or make furniture or something like that. Were you into photography, you know, from an early age? No, actually, photography is something I didn't pick up until the year before I started work, which would have been 2001. I wanted to document some of the stuff that was happening around at university, and then later on, I needed something to sort of distract me for an hour at lunch while I was working. And it had to be something that you could sort of pick up and put down and, and do anywhere. And the only thing that really fit the bill was photography, so I, I took it up more seriously, I guess, at that point. I imagine you're doing this corporate job, you're probably making a great income. Why not just do photography on the side and have it as an outlet rather than making it a, you know, an income-producing job? It's a very good question. And I think for me, the answer is because of my personality, I'm a very binary person. Either I do it or I don't. And if I do it, I do it to 110%. The problem is if I'm doing corporate, I'm doing that to 110%. And that basically leaves me no time left over. You know, the jobs that I was in, you know, it would be a rare week that I wasn't working at least six days a week. So by the time you pull that out, at in family time and everything else, there's really nothing left of it. So I felt myself being frustrated at not being able to, to do the stuff I wanted to do. And even when I had time, I couldn't make the images the way I wanted to make them because I was just out of practice. What about when you go pro and, you know, you've got these corporate clients now or these commercial clients, surely you still can't shoot the way you want to shoot. You've got to pander to them yes and no i think everybody has got or every pro has got clients to take care of because they've been with us for a long time or you know because we still have to have bread and butter income and, and what we want to do might be very very specific and very narrow and perhaps not have any commercial application but at the same time i think it's also our responsibility to say to a client that i don't think the creative fit is good and i think i'm going to turn down the job and you'd be surprised at the number of people who engage photographers who either A, don't really know what they want, or B, know very specifically what they want and say, look, we want you to reproduce this for our product or our company or our service or whatever the case may be. But the best type is the third type where they go, okay, we really like your work, we trust that you're going to do what you're going to do, and we're not going to give you creative direction. I have started off with, I guess, 
type A and type B clients because that's where the majority of them are. Shift more to type B because it's easier to execute and there's less risk from a professional standpoint. And you know, these days I'm trying to take mostly type C clients and it is shifting that way. And to be honest with you, I find it much easier to work with them because at least you're on the same page creatively. There's no second guessing either way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that sounds like the perfect client. Yeah, it's, sorry, it's risky because you may have an off day and it just doesn't work. You know, there are days when the client says, okay, so you have full creative freedom, but you're not feeling it. So it is risky in that sense. There's no fallback plan. Yeah, sure. So talk to me about that period when you left the corporate job, you went into photography. I mean, how skilled were you back then? Looking back from where you are now, were you really in a position to go pro? I think it's not the complete story because I actually tried to go pro three times before. And each of those times I was missing something, you know, whether it was marketing ability or contacts or technical skill or just ability to manage a job, you know, all of those things I think didn't really fall into place until the last round. And even then I was still sort of learning on the job and winging it. There's a lot of things where you can be conservative in what you do if you're in doubt and generally you'd be okay. But, you know, it takes a while before you get into a stride and, you know, can just run by instinct, I think. I think the transition point for me, the tough part was not so much the technical stuff, not so much, you know, the making images part, it's more of the selling part and managing a business part. Because up to that point, you know, I was used to saying, we need something done, there's another, you know, how many hundred employees just go and find somebody to do it. You don't really worry too much about the execution. But on this side, you know, the selling, the follow through, the execution, everything, the client servicing, everything is on you. So I guess those are new skill sets where you have to sort of make them second nature and that was tricky. So you were confident in your photographic ability at this stage. Did you go and learn this other stuff or did you just work it out? I think the photographic stuff was good enough. I wouldn't say it was good. I think it was just good enough. I mean, to be honest with you, I was not aiming at the high end of the market anyway. You know, I came in at sort of lower mid-level. But, you know, I think I was pretty much on par there. I think that the other stuff is just, you know, there's things you observe, you talk to people. As many of these courses say that they teach the business of photography, I don't really think they do because I think everybody's situation is different enough that what works for one person is not going to work for another. So to some extent, it's kind of, you know, you have no choice, but you either sink or swim. When you look back at that early work, what do you think of it now? I cringe. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, I cringe. I mean, look, honestly, I think everybody's got the same thing. There's some stuff, you know, we thought was absolutely fantastic when we shot it. We look at it now and we go, ah, man, that's horrible. Or we look at it now and go, okay, I could have executed that better. You know, it's not as refined as it could be. There's some stuff which you go, yeah, you know what? I couldn't do that again because time, opportunity, luck, whatever, it just sort of all came together on that day. But for the most part, you know, I'd like to believe that the next image I take is better than the one I did before. Otherwise, you might as well just give up and stop because you've already done your best work, right? So you put that much pressure on yourself. Every day you want to produce something better than what you did the day before. Absolutely. Yeah, right. So what do you do to get better? (laughs) Shoot more. Shoot more, practice, experiment, explore, look at what other people are doing, talk to people, you know, ask yourself, what if? It's like, I guess it's like pushing yourself to do documentary work. Like, I do a lot of corporate documentary work these days. Available light stuff can be very low light in mines and tunnels and engineering situations where, you know, you can't bring lights in physically. But I want to push the image quality barrier as much as possible to give my clients that sense of transparency where they can put their audiences in that situation. And... You can get an image that's atmospheric and that does what it needs to do, but it's not atmospheric plus transparent plus realistic plus, 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 plus. And so using medium format in this situation kind of pushes it to the point where, you know, it might work, it might not work. And 
I would personally rather have fewer but better images. And I think fortunately, I'm lucky that a lot of my clients agree. You know, they're not into the quantity. They're more into the, you know, we really want the right image, the killer image. We don't care about, you know, whether there's, we'd rather have five of those than 300 near misses kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Let's take the mining job for an example. You're shooting this for a client. You turn up in the morning. Have you pre-visualized anything? Are you going in there with expectations? I do as much pre-prep work as possible. So I will ask them for layout plans. I'll ask them what the light levels are like. I'll ask them what access I've got, what vantage points I can use. Depending on the client, sometimes they may have just rough phone photos that I can use to figure out my angles. I know exactly what I'm carrying. I know exactly what angles of view I want. Usually there's a rough guide to the shot list, like we want to cover X, Y, and Z. But they'll just say we want to cover X, Y, and Z. And then from there, I you know figure out backwards, what am I carrying? How am I carrying it? Especially in some situations where, you know, I've worked on subway tunnels before under construction where there's basically no, there's no infrastructure in place. You're very limited in what you can carry because you're squeezing through scaffolding. You've got to climb up and down stuff. It's muddy. It's dirty. It's humid. You don't really want to change lenses in that kind of environment. You really have to think very carefully how you're going to work before you do it. Otherwise, you're just not going to be prepared and you're going to be sort of, you know, more concerned about not getting concrete inside your camera than getting the shot. So I do plan and pre-visualize as much as possible. You're really going in there with a shot list in your head that you're trying to execute? Yes. So are you being creative at the same time, like while you're in there, or you just stick to the plan? If I see something that I didn't anticipate, then I'll shoot it. You know, I shoot everything first and worry about curation and delivery later. But as far as being creative goes, you know, you know what the objects are, what the elements of the story are you want to capture, but you don't know how it's quite going to come together until you physically see it. Because it's hard to guess spatial relationships and lighting relationships from just recce images. So there's a large amount of latitude when you're down there. Okay. All right. I want to get into your, your fine art stuff and your personal projects in just a sec and even your blog, but just going back to when you transitioned from the corporate world into the photography world, did you have a, a definition or an idea in your head of what success would look like? No. And honestly, I don't even know what success for a photographer is because, you know, you hear stories of people like Annie Leibovitz going bankrupt and then you wonder, you know, where is the tipping point at which you go, okay, so I'm comfortable, I, I'm doing what I'm doing. There are other commercial wedding photographers who do the same thing day in, day out. They make a decent living. Maybe they don't enjoy what they do anymore because it's too repetitive and that sort of spark and that creativity is gone. So I don't know whether success is a fiscal measure or whether it's a recognition measure or whether it's a personal satisfaction measure. Or, you know, maybe it's a balance of all three. And I think you honestly can't answer that until you've been there. I mean, honestly, we'd obviously all like to be rich and famous and personally satisfied with what we're doing, but it, realistically, it doesn't happen, right? Yeah, but I, mean, I get the idea, certainly when I look at your blog, that you're not driven by money. Am I wrong? Well, I think there's a certain degree of financial success you need because if you're worrying about paying bills and, and that kind of thing, then you know, you're not going to be putting your full creative effort into shooting. There is obviously unrealistic expectations. There is, I think, a reasonable level of confidence that's good enough. I mean, I'm fortunate enough that my work now pays me enough that I'm at that level. It was not always the case. You know, there are periods where I look at the next few months and go, oh, yeah, the pipeline is pretty empty, you know. You still have that now or not? Those days are over. I think every photographer is in this feast or famine mode, right? You know, when it's good, you're not going to turn down a job because you want to take everything just in case the next month or the next two months is, is empty. You know, the more people I talk to and the more pros I talk to in, in this industry for 20, 30 years, they say it's always like that. That feeling never goes away. 
you know, no matter no matter how good it gets, that feeling never goes away. And I think it's not necessarily a bad thing from a business point of view because it means that you're always planning and you're always being a little bit more cautious than you should be, which means there's always a bit in the tank. You know, whether that means you've got buffer to weather out a really bad year or a really bad six months, whatever the case may be, or whether it means that, you know, look, there's a bit of buffer in Europe, so I need a new piece of hardware, so be it. Or I want to take on personal projects for a month, I need travel expenses and all that kind of stuff. Did you have a lot of pressure from your family when you decided to make the move to photography? My wife was very supportive and she was the one who pushed me over the edge. Realistically, it's not responsible for me to do this. She said, you know, just go ahead and do it because you're always going to regret it and I'm going to have to live with it. So that was fair enough for her. Coming from a traditional Asian family, I think a lot of eyebrows were raised because for a lot of people in this part of the world, you know, the epitome of success is your job title and your corner office and all the other kind of stuff. But if you go away from that and go, okay, so I'm going to be a photographer, they go, what the hell? Uh, I think there was a long period of what the hell. <laughs> so that's past now, I imagine. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, frankly, you know what? It's my life. I'll do what I want. Of course. Of course. Yeah. But look, And the reason I did ask you is because you're obviously Asian. And my impression is there's a lot more pressure on Asian children, I guess, to perform and get to a certain level. And you basically had that and then left it. The funny thing about Asia is that we often celebrate those who are, how should I say, we celebrate those who are successful because they are outliers, right? But at the time, the process is not celebrated. You know, the fact that all these people dropped out of university or, you know, had, you know, were penniless for years and all that kind of stuff. You know, while you're going through that, you're castigated. But then when you when you make the big bucks, then you're celebrated. I mean, to me, it's kind of, it's hypocritical. It's really, you can't have one without the other. There's no reward without risk, and you can't do the same things as everybody else and expect a different outcome. Mm -hmm, for sure. Why do you blog? I like to write. I like to write. I like to communicate with people. I like to meet people. I think it's important that you know those of us who can raise the bar, try and raise the bar, and try and educate. And you know, in the long run, it actually makes my life easier because the more educated potential buyers of photography there are out there, whether they're clients, whether they're art buyers or education buyers it makes my job easier because it's like if you're trying to sell a car to somebody who's never seen one before, then you have a problem, right? But it's much easier to sell a luxury car to somebody who's had some experience with cars. Yeah, I totally get that. Say so with a, a shiny, fancy website, and I imagine that's where your corporate clients would go. I can't imagine too many of them going to read your blog. You'd be surprised. Oh, really? You'd be surprised how many start off reading and then hire me because of that, because of the philosophy, because of the way I shoot. I try and understand what I'm shooting first. So they go, okay, so if you understand what our business is, then you're going to do a better job of capturing the essence of it. And we like your style. You know, we can see more examples of the way you work. We, you know, we can see that in the 1,000, 200, 1,300 articles you've posted and the five, 6,000 photographs, you know, there's consistency. So we like that. It's not like saying, show me your portfolio of 10, but you took a million images to get those 10, the other you know, 9.999 million were rubbish. So the consistency thing I think matters, especially when you don't get do-overs. I can see there's a wide range of people commenting on the blogs, but I get the impression there's a lot of, I guess, pros, semi-pros and amateurs as well. Who are you writing for? I'm writing for the person who's serious about making images and serious about, whose focus is mainly about making images and trying to create something. You know, it's not for the gearhead. It may or may not be for the pros. It's not necessarily for the clients. Maybe it is for the clients because it, ultimately their communication guys are trying to make images as well and trying to sell stories. So I think it's a broad but specific audience. I know that sounds very, very conflicting, but the audience has to be broad in the sense that I don't want to discriminate against people who perhaps don't have the experience, they don't have the technical experience, they don't have the resources or whatever the case may be, but at the same time, they want to learn, you know. And... 
I also am not writing for somebody who is not interested in learning, who's just interested in arguing a point, because I think that that's counterproductive to the business of making images, right? And I do see there's a few comments from people like that. And yeah, you sort of, I wouldn't say you cut them down, but you move on pretty quickly from those sort of comments. I think it's important to keep the direction because otherwise it degrades. I mean, if you look at a lot of the, you know, a lot of the more popular fora websites, there's one with photography in its name, photography review in its name that actually doesn't really do very much about photography, for instance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the other thing with your site is, and I'd be interested to hear your answer, is why don't you monetize it? I mean, I know you've got those affiliate links with B&H and Amazon, but they're pretty small affiliate type links. They're extremely small. I mean, I get a couple of bucks at most. Yeah, in a good month, I might make $300. It doesn't even pay for the bandwidth cost, honestly. Well, yeah, which is crazy considering the audience size that you have and the amount of work that's gone into this blog and the information that's there. Why have you chosen not to monetize it? For two reasons, because, you know, back to the rationale of education, I want to provide a decent amount of, of stuff to make it accessible and monetizing it doesn't make sense. I think that business model is, is not there anymore. But I do have more serious education options for people who really want to take it further. And my time is limited, so I'm trying to give the best value to my clients, whether they're students or whether they're commercial clients. And I'm focusing on how to deliver the best value for them in a way that's, you know, perhaps self-selecting to a certain degree, because it's much more beneficial for both parties to teach somebody who wants to learn. So there is some monetization there. It's not that much, because to be honest with you, I think as far as advertising goes at any rate, there's a question of integrity as well, right? How can you pass an opinion on something and be seen as being objective if, you know, if you're sponsored by them? To me, that's an internal conflict. Maybe the audience doesn't see it that way, but to me, that's an internal conflict. I'm not comfortable saying I'll review product X, but they're a sponsor or they're an advertiser. Yeah, no, that doesn't sit right with me either. No. No. What do you shoot for fun? If someone says you've got a day off, go and shoot. What do you go and shoot? Subject matter? Yeah. Everything. I mean, literally everything. Well, to me, I try and see the world in colors and shapes. I don't look at whether it's a, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether, whether it's a tree or a person or a Ferrari or a toilet bowl. If there's interesting geometries and colors and shapes and textures, I'll just shoot it anyway. So I shoot anything. So if I say, okay, tomorrow you've got the day off, you've got nothing to shoot, take a camera and go and shoot what you like, what are you going to do when you get up? To be honest with you, tomorrow, if, if you said that to me, I would finish unpacking my house because we just moved last week. And things like that. <laughs> let's, let's assume that's done. I'm working on a couple of art projects at the moment. I mean, we're in the planning stages of figuring out the execution of certain things. I don't want to say too much about it yet because I don't think that's been done before. There's something which is related to yoga and there's something which is related to fruit. So I'd probably be doing experimentation on one of those because I want to get those projects done and in galleries sort of for the end of the year. Time is moving on. and I've got shoots scheduled until sort of the end of July. So my window is closing a little bit. Okay. So when you say you've got shoots scheduled, that's for commercial clients and this is yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. So do you get much time to work on personal projects? I think we actually have to make time. Not as much as I would like, to be honest, because... If it's a job that's going to pay versus one that I have to pay to execute, I might not get a result out of it. I'd obviously rather do the one that pays. But 
I try and make time. I think that's something we have to do as photographers. We have to, and actually this is something I was writing about a couple of weeks ago in creative development for professionals. You know, we can't keep doing the same thing again and again because either we land up losing our audience or we get stale or we get bored. And you know, at the end of it, there is no sort of professional development track where you know, if you're working in a big company, you want to proceed, then they'll send you for X, Y, Z course and, and that's it, right? But if we want to up our own skill level, we have to do it ourselves. There's nobody pushing us to do it. There's no formal pathway of doing it. You just have to experiment. Okay, so you go and pick a project, any project, and then what you just experiment, what to get better. Is that how you improve? I think there's a mix of that. There's a mix of shooting everything. There's a mix of various project-specific stuff. Then the curation part and you know the analysis slash review part, I think, is very important as well because you have to ask yourself, honestly and objectively, did the image work? And if it doesn't work, why doesn't it work? Or if it works, why does it work? Is it something that's controllable? Is it something that's random? Is it something that you can go back and can repeat consistently. I think it's important that we do a proper post-mortem of, you know, images which are shot for experimental reasons. There's no point just pressing the button and seeing what comes out without asking yourself, why did it come out that way? And how can I make it closer to what I want? Or why is it not what I want, you know? And we can do this whole process with images you shot, images that you see online, you know, images from other photographers. And I think it's something which perhaps a lot of people are not that good at. And it's very difficult to be objective about your own work. In fact, it's like asking somebody to pick their favorite child, right? But I think it's not that it's not that severe in the case of photography. So we need to take a step back and maybe perhaps not do the curation straight away, leave a day or two. And the more you do this, the less time can pass before you do a decent job of curation. Then only look through things. You know, the example I always give to my students is if you spent an hour or two trying to get that shot or waiting for that light and somehow it just doesn't quite work, you're not going to delete it because you feel like you're really invested in it. But at the same time, you might look at the same shot two years later and go, why the hell did I keep that? So we try and bring in that objectivity, but not so much objectivity that you don't remember what the shot was supposed to look like. Are you suggesting that the photographer that is experimenting and trying to push themselves should do this post-mortem themselves or should they put it out there on a blog or a forum and get critiques? I think getting critiques is a great way of, of improving. The only thing we have to be careful of is that when you get critiques, the person doing the critiquing must be somebody who can actually give you useful information. You know, if the person is not objective or, you know, for instance, a pro wouldn't ask his direct competition to critique him, right? No. That's bad for morale and that's just generally pointless. But at the same time, you wouldn't ask somebody who completely doesn't understand photography to critique a fine art piece because they may not understand why. Right. And at the same time, I think it depends on your audience. I think ideally you want somebody who's a, who's a member of your target audience, but perhaps a little bit more on the sophisticated end to be able to tell you, does it work or not? And to find the right person to critique is not so easy. It really isn't. Because I think objectivity, again, is tricky. So the best thing you can do is find a framework that works for you and analyze your own images. Sure. Do you have multiple projects going on all the time for yourself or do you concentrate on one and get it finished? I have right now... (laughs) I have 27 projects running at the same time. Personal projects? Yep. Okay, so how do you manage that? Let's say if you see something that's going to fit into one of those projects, you just shoot it and then put it into that folder and then... And then when I feel like there's enough material for me to curate through, then I'll go look through it and curate out something. Like, for instance, the, the idea of Man Project was shot over the space of six years, but the final show only had about 27, 28 images in it. So we curated that down from about 12,000. 
So what's the original seed, that idea that you think, okay, this is project worthy. I'm going to commit time and effort to this project. How is that born for you? I think it's the same way. It's very similar to the way I decide what to write about on the site. If the idea can be expressed in a very concise way, but yet explored in a variety of ways, either visually or from a discussion point of view, then I think it's worth pursuing. If it's one dimensional with only one or two images, then we can't do it because it doesn't make for a narrative. There's a flow, there's a story. It's not complete enough. So can you give me an example of one of these projects that has gone from, you know, from that seed of an idea that you've done all the way to exhibition? Well, Idea of Man is a good one because it examines the human condition. And what I was trying to do is take the conventional documentary street photography and represent it in a more ordered and I would say... I hate to use the cliche to find out because it's so vague, but in a more ordered and controlled way, but at the same time anonymizing the subjects because I wanted to present a series of situations in which the viewer could identify with themselves as the subject and you could see yourself in that situation, whether you know, whether it's a philosophical question or a you know, a feeling or a location or, or something like that. So it's Generic in a way because it could apply to everybody, but at the same time, it's kind of specific because it's sort of trying to express the feeling of, for instance, how do you express the feeling of choice or success or commitment or trying to find your place in the world and that kind of thing. Okay. See the way you've just articulated that. It sounds like a fantastic project and you know, you've finished it now. or It's been exhibited. When the idea was born, could you have talked about it like you just did then? I think I saw one image and said, look, this could be genesis of something because there is a universality to it or there's an element or two to it which I hadn't seen before, I hadn't shot before and then I go, well, okay, you know what, this could work in other situations. I think it was not 100% there, definitely not. I think 50% there. Sometimes I'll start abandoning them because they don't make sense. And then what goes into a blog post and that's it? No, sometimes they just land up in the rubbish bin or they just land up in the archive. Okay. Do you keep every photo that you take? I keep everything that makes sense. I won't keep the stuff that's such an obvious miss. You know, if you're doing experimentation and the light doesn't look right or, you know, misfocused or the camera's on when you put it in the bag or something like that, you know, you don't keep those. But stuff that, you know, stuff that can stand alone and passes my four things framework, you know, if the image on its own is, is solid, then yes, I keep it. Does it mean I use it again? No, not always. In fact, maybe 10% I use again. Okay. When you come back from a shoot, let's say you've got this selection of images, yep. you may not use them all right away. They may not even fit anywhere yet. Will you meta tag them? Like, how do you keep a track of what you've got? I'm actually very bad at the cataloging thing. I put things in folders by shoot and by date, but I don't meta tag anything. I just know where I roughly know where everything is. Okay. But at the end of every month, I sort of keep a digest of the best 20 or 30 or however many it may be. So it's very easy for me to go back month by month. Okay, I remember I shot that in this month and it's in that 20 or 30. And you're a big proponent of Photoshop over Lightroom, aren't you? Is that correct? Yes, correct. Why is that? Because Lightroom does everything in parallel rather than sequentially. So if you're trying to have very fine tonal control, especially the highlight roll-off at the shadow roll-off ends, you can't do it in Lightroom because you can only have one curve. You can't work in lab mode, which means your color shifts when you apply curves, and dodging and burning is very, very rudimentary. <laughs> so that's basically it. There's only three things I really use in Photoshop. That's dodging and burning, multiple curves, and lab mode. And Lightroom doesn't have any of those. So every image that you're working on, really you're working on it individually. You're not doing anything global across your images, like I say a wedding photographer would do. I might set white balance globally for, I mean, if I might you know, set white balance across an entire group of images if they were shot under the same conditions. But apart from that, no, I process everything individually. So you would do that in Bridge? 
No, my workflow is half in camera roll. So you open the things out of bridge and then they open the camera roll, which is the same as Lightroom, right? You make a starting point. You basically make a very flat starting point and then you do all of the tonal manipulation in Photoshop afterwards. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Let me change the subject and ask about your style. Mm -hmm. How would you describe your style if you have one? You know, I was asked this question by, um, there's a little backstory of this. I was asked this question by somebody at Magnum a couple of months ago and I didn't know how to answer that. And I think that's because I can shoot a lot of different styles depending on what the client wants, depending on what I feel the scene needs or what the subject needs. But thinking about it more, I think that the main thing that unifies all of my images is control and precision. So I'm a very, I'm a very precise and controlled photographer, both in terms of composition and in terms of exposure and, and everything else. You know, If something's out of place, I jump the image, I don't keep it. I think precise is probably the best way of describing it. Okay, so if you're going to shoot for yourself or for one of your projects, you know, do you lean towards a certain look? Do you prefer black and white over colour? Do you prefer a certain format? No, I don't have any preferences. I'd use whatever's most appropriate to the subject. I mean, if I'm shooting, I don't know, tropical fruit, I wouldn't do in black and white, for instance. But it might be an interesting project. But by the same token, if I was shooting classical nudes, I'd probably shoot them in black and white. Doesn't mean I wouldn't shoot either. I'd probably shoot both. But presentation appropriate to the subject, basically. Having done a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews with you know, specifically wedding and portrait photographers, mm -hmm. they make a big deal about finding a style. You know, you've got to separate yourself from everyone else. You've got to find your style and be true to that. You've totally dispelled that myth, you know, with what you just said. I don't necessarily think so. I think that, like I said, there is still a sort of commonality to my images in the sense that everything is very controlled. But, you know, whether I'm presenting it in color or black and white or whether it's in cinematic style or whether it's in a higher contrast style, you know, part of that depends on the subject matter itself and ambient lighting and everything else. Yes, I think in industries which are very highly competitive, it is important to have a consistently recognizable style. So somebody can say, oh, you know what, so-and-so shot this and I want this guy because I want this kind of image. But for commercial photographers, you have to be a bit more flexible because not every client is going to say, I want the same thing as my competition. Right? You may shoot for competing companies. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no conflict of interest because there's no transfer of confidential information or antitrust practices or whatever the case may be. However, they obviously don't want to have the same style as the competition, but they may want you to do it because you shot all of the, you know, you have the experience. You know, a good example is I shot a lot of watches at one point, and these are competing companies, but they don't want the same style. If anything, they want the opposite style. They want a very different style. And it depends on who your client is because. To some extent, with wedding and portrait photographers, I guess the economics of it are dictated not so much by the client as by the photographer because you'll go to a certain person because he produces a certain look. On the other hand, a lot of the time with corporate clients, they already have a look. They already have a corporate identity, and it's our job to try and fit that unless you're in a lucky position of being able to define that from scratch. Okay, so really, as a commercial photographer, you have to fit in with the client rather than being recognized for a style that you might have. I think it's a bit of both. I think it's important to show that you can have some versatility and you can inject some creativity. But at the same time, it's also important to be able to say, look, yes, I can deliver exactly what you want. Okay. So what about the photographer that's listening that feels like they are struggling to find a style? How would you recommend they go about finding it? I would look at a wide variety of other people's images, you know, just maybe make a list or a folder full of images which you like and try and find something common in all of those because there aren't that many different elements or different levers you can pull to change style. And 
this is something we actually covered in one of the training videos and how to find style and how to shoot in very specific styles and then how to process for that. It's a whole process, right? Because you have to shoot the right stuff, you have to shoot the right way, you have the right raw material in order to process it a certain way. But at the same time, style boils down to a few things. Subject to a certain extent, quality and direction of light, color of black and white, color palette, high key, low key, how much depth of field, angle of view, that's actually about it, and maybe camera position. So if you're consistent with all of those, the more consistent you be, the tighter the style becomes. But you could say, I only shoot in black and white high contrast, right? There's only two of those elements, but it's still a consistent style. Mm-hmm. Is it worth pursuing something like that or better just to ditch it and shoot the way you feel on the day? Well, to a certain degree, you, you need to have experimented with different looks to know what works for a certain situation or to know what you like. So to some degree, yes, you have to go through the whole process of copying and experimenting and you know, trying to copy other people's styles and trying to back engine, reverse engineer them before you figure out exactly what it is that you like. I think we all go through that. I mean, I just did. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I read in one of your blog posts there that shallow depth of field is one of the most overused techniques by amateur photographers. What did you mean by that? Because I think it's the same thing for wedding and portrait photographers and not only amateurs. I think it applies to pro photographers as well. The ability to isolate a subject against a messy background or not in a situation where you just throw the background and focus, that is not easy to do in every situation because sometimes you get very what's the word for it, you get in a situation where you can't use shallow depth field, right? Maybe the subject has infinity, background's infinity, or subject and background close together, you know, or maybe you need a wide-angle lens, you don't have fast enough aperture. There are so many situations in which you can't use it, firstly. Secondly, if you overuse it, then you completely lose context, and basically you might as well just shoot against the plain background because it's just a wall of blur, right? So to me, you're throwing away two things here. One is the ability to to include context and storage into the image and add layering and make it more complex and make an image that people think about and lasts for longer. And on the other hand, you're not producing anything that, that somebody else can't produce with the same piece of hardware. So, you know, in a lot of ways, you're actually working against yourself because you're making it harder to differentiate yourself from everybody else. And on top of that, you encounter situations in which it's simply not an option. You know, then what do you do? So it's not bad per se. It's just that Figuring out how to deploy and when to deploy it, I think is not something that people think about that often. No, but what you've just said there is brilliant because you know so many portrait photographers are turning up to a shoot with a, a 70 to 200 2.8 lens and shooting at 2.8 for the whole shoot. And really what you just said there is they can't differentiate themselves or it's very difficult to if they're taking that approach. Honestly, one of the things is people say medium format gives you shallower depth of field. Yes, it does under you know, identical situations. So if you're trying to match that angle of view and then you have f2.8 on the you know, smaller format and the larger format, larger formats obviously got shallow depth of field. But the funny thing is, I and to be honest with most other medium format commercial photographers, we don't shoot at wide open most of the time. We're shooting at somewhere between f8 and f16. You know, it's the opposite problem. We just want that little bit of transition. We want that little bit of separation. We don't want so much separation. To give the image or to give the subject context, is that why most of the time? Absolutely. And it's not just that. I think a lot of the time the client wants more of it in focus, but at the same time, I think it looks more coherent. And this is where I think it's important to understand the way our eyes work, for instance. We never see anything with really shallow depth of field with the naked eye. We see things slightly out of focus, and that, that looks natural to us. It doesn't stand out as being jarring. Very, very out of focus areas are very jarring because we don't see them in real life. And that, you know, sort of can distract from the subject. 
Yeah, if you're talking about a portrait, doesn't it become appealing or attractive because it pops off the print or the screen? Does it always? <laughs> Optimum aperture is not always wide open, right? No. Best acute is not always wide open. And if you've got flat light on the background and identically flat light on your subject, it's not going to pop at all, no matter how shallow depth of field is. But if you've done the lighting properly and everything's in focus, your subject will still pop. I can give you examples of both, you know, where in an ideal world, you have the right amount of depth of field, you have the right lighting, and yes, everything really pops. But, you know, there's a continuum where you have, like I said, really suboptimal lighting on subjects, suboptimal lighting on background, and it doesn't separate no matter how shallow your depth of field. And you have other situations where, you know, maybe you're working, for example, I can show you an iPhone portrait where the light separates the subject from the background really well. And the background texture is different, the subject texture is different. So you don't feel like you're missing shallow depth of field. The subject still pops. Because of the contrast and the lighting. It's all down to light. Photography is really about light. I mean, if you don't have light, you don't have photograph. Mm -hmm. One last thing I want to ask you about, and that's printing. How important is printing to you? Very. Yeah? <laughs> Short answer, very. I get asked often, you know, can you print this file? Is this file print ready? And my answer is all of my files are print ready. The reason for that is firstly because I print a lot, both for my clients and for my own personal work. And I think at the moment we have this massive gap in output between, or rather input and output, between what our camera capture and what the screen can display. Even the best monitors like the 5K iMac thing, you know, that only shows about 14 megapixels. If you're shooting with a, with a 50 megapixel camera, you're only seeing a quarter of the information. That's one problem. You're not looking at all of the information captured, right? So you're not really doing the image justice. And secondly, there is no absolute reference anymore. No matter how well our screens are calibrated, everybody's is slightly different, which means that everybody is looking at something slightly different and there's no absolute reference. So I don't know whether you're seeing what I want you to see. So the print becomes very critical. And the print is tangible output, right? At the end of the day, if hypothetically, as and when all of us die, you know, we've got hard drives and hard drives and hard drives full of images, is anybody going to bother looking through them? Probably not. You know, unless you're extremely famous, probably not. They'll just get chucked on the trash heap. But a print will still survive, you know. There's some longevity to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. There's been a little bit of talk in the group that I'm a part of about the fires in Canada that are going on at the moment and people yeah. losing everything. Yeah. But some of the arguments that I'm hearing is that, you know, a USB is going to, or a digital file has got more chance of surviving a fire than a print. So maybe we should be having more digital files or backups anyway. Backups are certainly very important. I mean, I honestly, I don't fully trust the cloud, so I don't have anything in the cloud, but I, I have a set of critical backups with me all the time. They just live in my bag. So no matter where I am, I've got one set on me and I've got another set back in the office. So two physically separate sets, everything in the office has three copies and two of those are rated. I've had drive failures before, which is why I have this many backups. And from my experience, drive failures can and do happen. The more drives you have, the more likely the failure is going to be, the bigger the drives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you can never have too many backups. And what I, what I typically tend to do is once the drives get sort of 60, 70% full, typically by that point, the drive double capacity has come out. So I'll just replace it with that. And then the old drives get archived somewhere else. With your printing, how much do you actually print for yourself? Not for an exhibition, just for fun, just to enjoy the photos or to go into an album or a book. Quite a lot. I mean, we were working, myself and the print master I work with, we were, we were working on a new print process where a printer gets physically modified so that the stepper motor moves in smaller increments and we get more resolution. And basically because when you have limited space, but you still want to enjoy that sort of information density and the richness of the image, you know, it enables you to do it 
you know, without having to go to silly sizes, it's also more cost economical rather than having to print and store really, really big images. So, you know, in the process of that, I lost count, we printed thousands of prints, we made thousands of prints, literally thousands of prints. My office has a, I have a wall which is probably, I guess, 25 feet by 12 feet, and it's got metal rails on it, and I have prints that sort of live on there. And I just, you know, use magnets to stick them up and rotate them in and out, and basically that's my long-term curation method. If something stays up there, then I know it's, it's lived, it's survived. Very good. I love it. Ming, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Where is the best place to send a listener to have a look at more of your work? Thanks, Andrew. My site, linkedin.com, is probably the best place to find me. Okay, fantastic. I'll add links to that and the other things that you mentioned in the show notes. The course that you just talked about a little while ago about finding your style, is that on the mingthian.com blog? You can access it through my main site. It's under the teaching store. So there's a whole bunch of videos we produce because people are asking us like, people are asking me specifically, how do you do, you know, how does your Photoshop work for work? You know, do you really have time to process every image individually? Yes, we do because it takes me about a minute per image. What are the fundamentals of photography? How do you do monochrome work? How do you do street work? You know, what do you look for when you're traveling and shooting in a certain place? All that kind of stuff. And we've covered that in a series of about 25 videos, I think. And they live in the teaching store link in, on the hair bar. Fantastic. I'll add links to that and I'm going to check out the process you're talking about because I think you said you use two lots of curves and lab color. Is that right for your Photoshop work? Yeah, pretty much. Cool. I'm going to go and check that out. Cool. Ming, it's been an absolute pleasure again, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Hey, mate, that's great. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Yeah, no, no worries. No worries. Was that, was that everything okay? Spot on. I felt like I was hammering you with questions. <laughs> was that cool. okay? Yeah, I've, had, I've had much worse stuff before. Like people asking me, you know, what's the worst client you've had? Have you had weird requests? And, you know, how do you handle conflicts of interest? And have you had competing photographers? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the answer is, I mean, you've been in, if you've been in the business long enough, and I haven't been in the business that long, but I've been in it long enough to experience all sorts of, you know, random crap. You know, everything from everything from incredible days where, yeah, you know, you, the last one of the last assignments I did, I was in Western Australia. I was up at, um, which part of Australia are you from, actually? I'm on the East Coast, just north of Sydney. Okay. So I was up around Francois Perron National Park on the West Coast. So up part north of Geraldton. And I was shooting something for one of the tourism companies. And, you know, we flew at sunrise and sunset in a light aircraft with the doors off. It's absolutely stunning, you know, honestly, absolutely stunning. One of those days you just never forget because you're flying along at a thousand feet. The pilot's doing everything you want him to do. The, the bay is like a mirror and you see these clouds floating above and below. It's just surreal. And then there are days when you get trays of 200 identical crappy looking products that you've got to do front, back, side, front, back, side, and you go, oh God, why? <laughs> so you're still getting those jobs? I still do them for some clients because they're good clients, you know, and this is a relationship game. It really is. It's not so much about how good your images are as how well you can sell them, to be honest. And that's something I think a lot of photographers don't realize. I didn't realize until I went in that it, it really is not about how good you are. You know, you can be good enough right? As long as you're good enough and you can sell, you do very well. But if you're really, really good and you can't sell, then you're screwed. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's kind of sad because there are a lot of people I think who are very, very good photographers and just, they don't get the business part right. And there are people who are very good businessmen and really crappy photographers and, you know, it goes both ways. But it's, I don't know. I don't know whether you feel it in Australia, but I think the market is sort of coming back to quality again, but it's a slow, it's a slow circle. 
Well, I mean, look, as a wedding photographer, primarily, and a portrait photographer, it's very competitive. It's tough. But do you think in the long term we're in a survival game or we're, we're sort of at least things are looking up? I mean, I, I feel on the commercial side that there were two or three years, the last couple of years have been very hard you know, because everybody and their dog is just going, okay, you know, I'll do it for 50 bucks. And then you go, well, I can't compete with that. I'm not even going to play that game because the minute you start throwing prices like that, you are never going to be able to retain your old rates. Yeah, see, that's welcome to the wedding and portrait industry. <laughs> I mean, anyone that buys a camera is a wedding photographer now. Well, I mean, there's the whole consistency and experience thing, right? Oh, sure. Look, there's still clients that are going to pay if you're good and you have a reputation and a style or a look, but there's competition like never before. You know, I have to say it's a good thing and a bad thing because in some ways the accessibility of markets, of equipment, of everything, of learning material, you know, that's helped me enormously, right? But yes, it does make competition tougher, but I, I think we just have to say, look, we have to be better. If you really want to do this, you have to really want to do it more than the next guys. You have to be better. But, you know, at the same time, I also think that we need to learn how to say no. And this is another competition I've had with a lot of experienced guys where they go, well, you know what? If you've got a business problem and you can't find clients, what you need to do is actually start turning down people and double your rates. Shoot less, charge more. No, but paradoxically, it makes a lot of sense because then you get the clients who really, really want you. Do you do a really good job because you're happy doing it? They're really happy and then you get referrals and, and all that kind of thing. You know? But if you're doing cheap jobs just to fill the time, then I feel like, firstly, you become creatively very dead and secondly, you're not happy because you're being underpaid. They're not happy because they feel like they're paying too much and they, you know, they don't really care. So that's a lose-lose. Yeah, but what you're suggesting for a guy that's got a mortgage and kids and a family, you know, that, that's a risky thing. It sounds great on paper. Double your prices and shoot less. I have a mortgage and kids and a family. You know, despite what people think, I didn't quit corporate with a bag of money to sit on and it didn't matter whether I made it or not. I still make all of my income from photography. Okay, so you did that. You doubled your prices and shot half as much. I was more picky about clients I took. You know, there are some which I say, look, honestly, I don't think it's a good creative fit. Some I refer to other people who are willing to do it. And some of them came back and said, look, you know what? We're not going to tell you what to do. We changed our minds and we just do it. You know, some of them you just lose. It doesn't matter because they probably were not the clients you wanted in the first place. And I think that's one of the hardest things for any photographer to do is turn down a job, especially when you don't have other stuff sitting in the pipeline. You know, now I find it very hard to turn away a job because, you know, the business part of me goes, no, nah, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, make sunshines and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes you physically can't do it. Sometimes it physically doesn't make sense. Sometimes creatively it's going to be, it's going to be bad for you. I don't know. I mean, there's been a whole shift in the industry, at least in Malaysia. I think it never fully matured. So the number of clients who could really discern quality was very, very small. And it shrank, especially in times of budget pressure. I don't know whether that's the case in Australia. I don't know how mature the market is in Australia. I can't really give you a good answer because I'm not a high-end commercial photographer. I know, I know the guys that are up there, there was some tough times. And I know some left the industry altogether, packed up and stopped. You know, And I guess it's a bit like the weddings. You know, There's the guys that are coming in that want to do it for $50 and not charge the right amounts. But there's a lot of guys fighting against that. And they're still in business, so it can't be all bad. What, the $50 guys are in business? No, no, no. The guys that are still charging what they're worth. Well, the $50 guys are going out of business. That's what we're seeing. I mean, after you know a year at most of this kind of thing, they realize they can't survive. You know, just to give you an idea of, I guess, I don't remember what the cost of living in Australia is like. It's been a while since I was there. I grew up in Melbourne, but that was in, you know, in the late mid-90s. Here, the average income in the capital city is something around four to 5,000 ringgit a month. That's about $1,500 Aussie dollars to $2,000 Aussie dollars, something like that. Okay, so that's pretty similar to us. Is it? I would say 1500 a month. Yeah. 
Maybe a bit less. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. No, it's not. <laughs> Over here, I think it's seventy five, eighty thousand dollars would be the average now. A year? Yes. Yeah. So you're looking at about six to seven grand a month. Yeah. Right. But our cost of housing to average income ratio, average house to average income is something like 25, 30 to one. I'm guessing it doesn't cost you two and a half million to buy a house. No, not for the average person. That's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is we have no public transport, so everybody has to buy a car, but we've got 200% tax on cars. You know, so a Camry is costing sixty, seventy thousand Aussie. Wow. And it's just impossible to survive. You know, these photographers who are charging at the really low end, they can't survive for more than a year. There's just no money. And the worst thing is they go into it thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to open a studio, blah, 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 blah. and then at the end of it, they, and they realize that their monthly burn rate is probably three times what their billing rate is. They, they don't understand the business part. And it's like too much too soon. You know, I've never had a studio, and I still don't, and I don't want one, mainly because I can't justify the ROI for it. I don't think I'd use it anywhere near enough. I have access to other studios I need. And why do I want to run up the fixed cost? I don't shoot things that require a studio. So part of that, I think, is a conscious decision that I want to do things which are not easy to do, so that limits the competition to some degree. But at the same time, I don't want to do things that require a huge amount of investment, setup, and, and everything else. See, I, I don't know if Malaysia is like Australia, but you know, these fifty-dollar guys, once they go out of business, there's usually someone else behind them coming into business. You know, that they're always there; they don't disappear. They are, but I think there's a finite number of these people who are going to do it and they realize, you know what, my friend did it or so-and-so, somebody knew I did it, they basically went in and quit. The ones who are a bit more concerning, I think, are the sort of skilled amateurs who still have day jobs and they might just shoot over the weekends. Because those guys know what they're doing. They have the money you know, to play at a reasonable level. And then on, on top of that, they have the staying power. So you see that in the commercial genre as well? I see that in every genre in, in Malaysia because, like I said, the bar for good enough for clients is pretty damn low. Yeah, yeah. Ninety percent of my work is not in the country because people just don't want to pay for it, and that's fine. You know, I don't want to be the one who spoils the market and doing medium format stuff at five hundred dollars a day. It doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense when you're trying to find an ROI on a system that's sixty, seventy grand or more. It doesn't make sense. So, fortunately, there's still markets in Australia that are uh, not Australia, in around the region that are, are mature enough that they're willing to pay for quality. Yeah, it's good. That's good. Mate, it's been great chatting to you. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no worries. I mean, I'm not pressured for time, so whatever. That's good. So are you happy if I leave this little bit in the recording? If you want. Yeah, not a problem if you want. Are you okay if I grab uh, the headshot off your blog to go with this blog post? Yeah, that's fine. I was actually shooting a personal project today for some of the Hasselblad stuff I need to submit. So you've got contractual arrangements with them where you have to provide images? Yeah, I do. That's part of the deal. What were you shooting? I was shooting a bunch of yoga poses, actually. Oh, that was part of this project. <laughs> that was part of this project. And today was the test run because we were experimenting with some slightly odd lighting. Odd lighting because we don't have the appropriate modifiers, so we had to go make stuff out of cardboard. <laughs> so do you blog all this stuff, or do these images go straight to Hasselblad? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I mean, most of the time I'll give them stuff first so they have priority because that's part of the deal. You know, as and when it's released, then I'll put it up. And it's the same thing with all the client stuff, you know. They give me release to use it for my own purposes for so long as it's non commercial in my own portfolio or site or whatever, that's fine. But obviously they get exclusivity for a certain period and you know, I won't use it for cross promotional stuff and if they stay exclusive, exclusive, you know, that's fine, it's priced into the license anyway. Okay. So do you always retain copyright for your images and you just pass on usage rights? 
I retain copyright, but sometimes, depending on what the client wants, sometimes I will assign them copyright as well. At a premium? At a premium. You know, sometimes I find for a lot of stuff, and the stuff that's typically copyrighted is very proprietary and that, to be honest with you, it's of little use to me anyway. So it actually made sense for me to just go, okay, you want exclusive copyright, you own the images, that's fine, you price it certain amount, you just own it. And then I don't have to worry about licensing and renewals and all that kind of stuff later on. I mean, you know, a year from now, if you've got to negotiate with a different person in the client, saying, well, why do we have to pay for something we've got? It's just, you know, it streamlined the process enormously, I feel. So do you even keep a backup then of those images if you've sold copyright? Yeah, I do. I have copies of everything. No matter what the license clauses that I have with the client, there's always a clause in there which says, I retain the right to use them for my own professional portfolio. And, you know, there's never any issue with that. I mean, there has been once or twice where I photographed very, very sensitive things, let's say, and they said, fine, you can keep the images, but you cannot show them to anybody else. <laughs> so they're in the private collection? They weren't people, if that's what you're asking. Okay. <laughs> they weren't people. It was technology-related stuff. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Wow. Now you must see some things doing your job. It must be fantastic. I've been on the receiving end of a tunnel boring machine while it's running. I've been two, three hundred meters under Hong Kong Island in, in subway tunnels. I've had armed security guards out of the room I was shooting in Switzerland because there were 20 watches in the room, each of them worth about five million Swiss francs each. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All sorts of stuff. You know, I've done, I've done everything from the mundane to the, to the amazing. I've shot a conic stick, which I got to drive after that, which is pretty damn incredible. What was it? What? The conic stick. I don't know. What is that? It's this, I think it's the Danish or Swedish supercar, which has 1,300 horsepower. Oh, wow, okay. And you got to drive it after the shoot. Yeah, they're about 2 million euros. <laughs> Where did you get to drive? On a racetrack? No, no, it's just around in the compound. Oh, okay. I shot in the cockpit of River, a Boeing 777 for, for KLM. That was pretty amazing. You know, there's stuff that you see which you can't, you actually can't capture because it's technically impossible. Like, if you're looking at a storm at 40,000 feet at night, Wow, you know, honestly, it is just mind-blowingly incredible, incredible. I see you were flying and shooting. Yeah, yeah, I was flying. I was flying. I was documenting a flight. Are you set up with tripods, or is this stuff handheld? What are you doing? No, it's all handheld. All oh, right. Are these images on your site? No, these are one of those that's client embargoed, and you know they'll use it for whatever they use it for, and then maybe two years from now, if I that kind of thing. But, yeah, that was pretty amazing. I mean, that's really the best seat in the house. You've got these massive windows, which are probably about a meter square. They're clear. You know, they, they lean in a little bit on the side, so you could actually lie back and look upwards, which is quite surreal as well. <laughs> Why would they sit on them for two years if they've commissioned you to do this shoot now? No, no, I, I won't post them. Oh, okay, right, but they're using them now. Correct. I mean, there's other things I've done, like there's a hospital in Malaysia which was the first one to do awake brain surgery. So... For some sensitive brain tumors, the patient has to be anesthetized, they open them up, and then they wake them up once the brain is open so that the psychologist can assess whether they're cutting the wrong part of the brain, basically, whether they're cutting critical functions or not. And that was pretty damn surreal because I was shooting and videoing brain surgery in the operating theater. We couldn't put anything down on the floor, right, because of infection risk. We could only use what we could carry. We couldn't bring in fabrics and stuff like that, so that means no bags, no, you know, whatever bits and pieces. And actually, the technical, and you obviously can't get too close as well. The technical challenge of executing this is like, we had 
probably two days of planning meetings just figuring out what could we bring into the OT, what we could sterilize that we could bring in, what we needed, what the client wanted, and how to execute it. Because if you think about it, we have to video all the close-up stuff from two meters away, handheld. Yeah, right. I imagine you've got a heap of light around the actual, you know, where the opening is in the head, but everything else goes black. And then it ranges crazy. Yeah. So are you allowed to bring supplement the light in there? No, we just angled it in such a way that you didn't notice. Okay. There's no way we could have done it. That only is like 16 stops. We're looking at really, really high shutter speeds at the actual operation, at the, the operation, the wooden site. But the, the rest of the operating theater was just, you know, it was bright, but it wasn't anywhere near that bright. Mm-hmm. Did you get queasy? Well, one of the reasons I, I never considered doing medicine is I hate blood, but <laughs> when you look through the finer, it's all like, okay, I'm worried about framing, I'm worried about pulling focus, I'm worried about the, everything else. It's, you don't think about it. Afterwards, when I was doing the edit, when I was actually watching the edit with my video partner, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you can do this bit. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see this again. I don't need to see it for the 20th time. It's fine. You go do it. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> but only afterwards. Oh, mate. Fantastic. I, I'm sure you've got a thousand stories. I, you know, I didn't thank Roland Banderob because he's the one that suggested I get in contact with you. And as soon as he did that, I, I checked out your site and I was like, wow, I can't believe I haven't seen you before. So it's, um, yeah, really, really happy I got to chat. Roland who? Uh, his name's Roland Banderob. He's a photographer in the UK. He used to be a documentary photographer and now he's moved into uh, real estate and some other stuff. Okay, Roland, I know a few Rolands. I'm just, I don't know the surname, so it could be, could be the same guy. Might be, might not be, don't know. Yeah. I thank him that he, he let me know and yeah, put us in touch. That was great. Yeah, no worries. The best thing I think about that's fallen out of the whole social media thing is that thing is it's much easier for us to communicate with other photographers or, or you know, just to some degree feel like there's a bit more of a professional network. I mean, maybe in the long run there will be a professional network that, that's cross-genre and international and we try and maintain standards and all that kind of stuff. I suppose the agencies were, were the forerunners of that, but that all kind of fell apart when they got a bit greedy. I think we need that again. Maybe not the agency part, but at least some sort of professional standards body, like you know, professional accountants have the Chartered Accountants Institute, things like that. I think we're missing that. Our industry is missing that. Yeah, well, they're just trying to start that now in Australia with the AIPP. They're trying to get it. Well, I think they have now that with the ACCC, it's, it's photography is now recognised as a profession for the first time ever. But does it make a practical difference if you're not a member? No, that's the thing. It'll take years for that to come through. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's the kicker. I mean, there were many bodies which tried to start it in Malaysia. You know, at the end of the day, people just started arguing and politicking, and then the whole thing just fell apart. And to be honest with you, I have very little to do with the local photographers here because it's just, you know, it feels kind of petty sometimes. It feels very, very petty. I don't know why they do that, but they just, they just do. It's to the detriment of everybody. It's kind of sad, actually. It is, but, you know, to make photography a profession, that would be fantastic, but that would take, I think, decades for it to filter down to the actual public or the people that are hiring photographers to take any notice of it. But it is a profession. I think it's not that simple to just say that, look, you could have shot the same thing for 10 years and it's you know, the same rubbish, or you could have shot, you know, for three or four years, but you're really doing that conscious experimentation cycle and, and your, your work looks great. So I think it's harder to assign a pass-fail for membership because it's not quantitative, right? It's not that you can pass a bunch of accounting exams and say, okay, so now you're an accountant because you can file a tax return and you can do double entry bookkeeping and all that kind of stuff. It's very different. I mean, who's to say good enough? How do you know your light control is good enough? What if you don't pass because you don't work with external lights? Or what if you don't pass because you can't work with ambient? 
you know. But you might be very good at the other thing. But then how do you make it a profession? You've got to have some kind of boundaries or you have to have some sort of entry exam or some way to measure whether someone can be a member. Otherwise, how does it work? I actually think it should be a lot simpler than that. I think it should be we agree to keep to a certain standard code of professional ethics, right? Things like, you know, we promise our clients we invoice in a certain way, you know, we are registered business, we deliver images within a certain amount of time, you know, this is a minimum rate, you know, we have a guide rate card as a minimum, not a maximum, but we have a guide rate card as a minimum. We adhere to certain professional standards of decency and conduct and, you know, we'll get back to you, we'll reply emails within a certain amount of time, that kind of thing, you know. Whether the image works is good enough or not is down to whoever's paying for it. But things like, you know, do you deal with clients in a professional way? Do you provide them original files? You know, do you understand how image licensing works? Things which are not qualitative, I think we can certainly, I don't say legislate, but we can certainly provide guides around. You know, just say that's in place. Let's say that starts tomorrow. Yeah. What's to say that the business hiring the photographer cares about that because they see the guy they like they like the rates they like what he does i'm going to hire him because if you hire somebody who's not you may or may not get what you want at the end of the day they may promise you x and deliver y you know that's the problem because basically to my mind at least professionalism is a certain degree of commitment it's like saying you know no matter how shitty i feel on the day or whether i had a fight with my wife or you know whether my car wouldn't start or whether i got stuck in traffic or whether you know i'm you know, feeling depressed or whatever the case may be, or whether how ugly your product is, I will still deliver what you ask me to deliver at a certain minimum level. And that minimum has to be, I don't know, I mean, it can't be a crappy job. And that's, it's kind of implicit because if you say you're going to uphold all the other elements of conduct, then you're not likely to be the kind of person who cuts corners. So it's an indirect way of putting it through. It sounds good, but you know what? The guys that are hiring the $50 photographer today, they won't care. They're still going to hire the $50 photographer. They won't. And you know what? There's always going to be a market for that. It's like, you know, it's like food, right? There's always a market for crappy fast food. But even the crappy fast food, to some degree, has to have standards of cleanliness and all that kind of stuff, right? That's what it is. You know, I think there's nothing wrong with saying, look, I do $50 jobs, but you get X quality. And, you know, I shoot with a Canon Digital Rebel or whatever the case may be. Fine. Maybe that's all you need. You know, for some things, you really don't need to go to the nth degree. But then again, you know, I've had clients before. I mean, I had this one client who's a famous landscape architect, and he said, look, I've designed this thing which has astrophysics references, and I need a photographer who understands astrophysics and can make me some, and, and I want delivery as enormous high-resolution prints. And basically, you're the only one who fits the bill. Name your price. I mean, you get things like that. <laughs> That's going to be the dream job. How did you even come up with a price? Calculating price, I think, is the most difficult thing any of us do. But it's nice if you've got a level that, you know, that you're comfortable with and that you're getting, you know, that the clients are happy to pay or paying. The thing is, you know, sometimes you compromise that because there are jobs you really, really want to do. Yeah, but that's okay then if you really want it. But sometimes I wonder in the long run whether that compromises reputation and everything else because you land up with a situation where somebody may go, well, yeah, there was a great job, but, you know, we only paid X and that's half of what you're asking the other client. And especially in a country where it's a really small business environment, that can be risky. So you couldn't say, look, I had never shot that before and I needed that for my portfolio. Now that I've got it, it's normal rates. No, I wouldn't say that because then the implication is that the job you did for the other client might have been a compromise. So you kind of have to be careful not to undermine yourself at the same time. So it's... mm. Well, that's tricky then. I mean, I think it's actually easier if you just say, look, I do two hours of documentary, two hours of portraiture, and this is the rate, right? It's not negotiable. Yeah. 
but at the same time, that maybe excludes you from doing certain things which you would have liked to do. I don't know. So what do you do then if you really want this job? You have to compromise somewhere or something has to give. I give them extra images usually. And that's something where it's a value added, but I don't compromise on the sticker price. So I think to me, that's easier because I want to make the images anyway. I'm going to make the images anyway. You might as well use them, right? Rather than saying, I've contracted for 20 or 30, I'll give you 40 because I really want to do it. Sure. Business-wise, that makes total sense. I think that's the only solution. I, having scratched my head over this many times, it's the only solution. You know, delivering extra value is the only solution. And I think all of us as photographers, increasingly, we have to add extra value because there are other jobs along the, the creative food chain. Like, honestly, the number of jobs I've been on where there's an art director has been cut. It used to be every job. Now it's like, none. You're the art director. I'm the art director as well. So if we can't be in a comfortable in a situation like that and we can't add value, then we're not going to get hired. That's what I mean by, you know, you have to up your game because I don't see the other options. I don't see any way out of it. No, because it'll go to someone else. If you're not over-delivering and yeah, providing the best service and best quality and giving them everything they want. You can't over-deliver so much that you basically put yourself out of business. I think we have a situation now, at least in my country, where a lot of the big studios, they're heavily scaling back. They're paying people less. They're dumping all the medium format systems and going to DSLRs. They're, you know... I've been hearing stories of shoots where there's not enough like light stands, you know, things like that. <laughs> it's bad because I think they used to be full service under the old model, but they can't operate lean. What can they do? Like if the client's not paying and they haven't got the budget, it's either do that or go out of business. Like, it looks like it's a downward spiral. Well, the thing is, I think we need to still be in the country and still be available as and when things pick up. And I'm seeing it slowly pick up this year. I've had a lot more inquiries for high-end work this year than previously. You just have to be able to hold on. I think it'll come back, but I think you just have to be able to hold on. And the only way to do that is find work outside or find alternative work or offer additional value I and mean, things like that. I mean, honestly, I'm not dependent on work in the country to survive because if I was, I would have gone out of business three years ago. Yeah, right. And I think talking to Hasselblad at least, there is a problem. They have a problem because there aren't that many photographers or studios in this country who can justify running one of the systems. So what are they going to do? They don't want to drop their margins either. No. I think it's shifted a lot in recent years to being the rich amateurs who are buying. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I know here, I think basically amateur to professional purchases are it's like 10 to 1. Yeah. yeah. I don't know for sure, but I imagine it would be very similar to that. Right. The camera stores are there for the amateurs more than anyone else. Yeah, because the pros who are just entering business now, you know, either they're going to crash and burn because they're spending too much, or they're sensible and they're just going to do what's needed and up your skill level instead, or, you know, we have to have ROI for everything. If there's ROI, it doesn't matter how much we spend. I produced ads before which had ridiculous spending because we needed helicopters and Russian arm on a, on a crane and all that kind of stuff. But the ROI justified it. But at the same time, you know, I don't have any of these CFAS cards for the new Hasselblad because they're stupidly expensive. I can't justify the ROI. It's not that on an absolute scale they're expensive. It's just that I don't see what extra benefit I get you know, for the $1,000 I need to spend on a new set of cards, for instance. That's where the amateur would spend the money. Exactly. And that's the difference between people who stay in business and people who don't. It's really figuring out, looking at it from a business point of view and saying, do I really need it? Is there a justifiable return or not? It doesn't matter how much the absolute amount is, so long as it's justifiable return, the business works. And like I said, the creative side and the business side are so different that often they're in conflict because you want to go, okay, you know what, I'd be nice to have another two lights or have this or have that, but you use it once and you go, well, yeah, it doesn't make sense. 
You know, I've bought lenses for jobs before in the early days where I thought I'd need it and I didn't end up using it. It was a waste of money. Yeah. So you don't build that cost into the job? That's the one that you absorb as a business? No, that was in the early days, right? That was in the early days. Now, if I need to buy a piece of hardware for the job, either I'll build in the cost of rental or I'll go, well, it's going to cost me X to buy and then I'm going to lose this much on resale. So the net rental cost is this, it'll be built in or the job will pay for it or whatever the case is. So the ROI has to be there. But I guess on the flip side, if you're just starting out, you're learning, you go, well, if I don't have it, I don't know how to use it. If I don't know how to use it, then I don't know what to do with it. It goes around in circles. Yeah, yeah. I think we've all been there. I think we've all been there. Yeah. I don't think I'd want to be starting over again. I think it'd be tough. No, I wouldn't want to start over again. Yeah. I really wouldn't. Well, you know what? Maybe not. You know, in some ways, if you start over again, you've got the benefit of a lot of new technology, which we didn't have before. But at the same time, if you're not established, you're going to have to start learning how to do everything in video, motion, graphics, aerial, blah, 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 blah. You can't just say, look, this is all I do. And my portfolio is X, you know, whatever X may be. You've got to offer everything from the start. But then how do you learn? No, but you can't offer everything. That's right. You, can't, you don't know it. Because you're a journalist and you have no experience. That's right. Oh, that's tough. So it's a weird, I don't know, it's this weird conflict. I honestly don't know what the long-term resolution of this is. Personally, I don't know whether I'm going to be shooting the same thing in another five years or not. Probably not. Yeah, that's a long time, though. You know, like today, five years, things change quickly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they change in ways that are dictated by popular media. You know, one of the questions I was asked, I was very, very against Instagram and filters and God knows what else because I felt like it bastardized the image. But if that's what the, you know, the popular trends are and that's what the people want and that's what the people think, think is good and that's those are the people making the decisions and buying the products and being influenced by it, you know, who's to say it's wrong? Because it's so subjective anyway. Who's to say it's wrong? We have to actually ask ourselves, you know, is it our biases that don't make sense? You know, to me then, that's when you start to define style, you know, or you, you have a look or an opinion, you know, and that's what separates you then from the others. But you have to know why you're doing it. I think a lot of people don't. They just do it because, oh, yes, it looks cool. You know, not, for instance, my style is precise because I want to use all of the areas in the frame. You know, the tonal management is precise because I want my images to look a certain way and feel a certain way. And I want to control emotion with color temperature of light. I want to create an underlying structure that forces you to read an image in a certain way because different elements are of different visual prominence. You know, I want to create image quality of this level because I want to print it or it needs to be used for these purposes or whatever the case may be, right? It's very different from saying, I use this filter because it's popular. Yeah, but what about if you said you use this filter because you like it? Doesn't that stand up just as much as all the technical side? It does, but then you have to ask yourself, why are you doing it? Because you like it is not a creative defense. You know, what if you don't understand what that filter actually does and they change it, they drop it? Does that mean your style disappears because you no longer have access to that? No, it's, it's serious. <laughs> That's true, I know, that is true. Well, the creative choice is in a software engineer. So, you know, it's like shooting JPEG. You leave your post-processing decisions and half the creative stuff on the table for somebody else to do. How can that be then your style? It's not. It's your choice, but it's not your style. <laughs> What about when we're shooting film? I process my own. Yeah, but still you're relying on the film choice, you know, as a comparison to JPEG. Right, but the difference is if you send film off to a mini lab and it comes back with whatever, then you are basically shooting JPEG, right? It's very different to developing film in your own recipe according to your own, you know, concentrations and temperatures and agitation methods and then dodging and burning afterwards. That's very different. Okay, what about if I was shooting transparency? And, you know, getting the trannies back from the lab, that'll be the same as shooting JPEG, and I process the JPEGs the way I want to. It's funny you bring that up because I think... Did you see that controversy recently about Steve McCurry and retouching and all that kind of stuff? You must have done No, no, I didn't. So Steve McCurry was found to have retouched 
a number of his photojournalist images and stuff from his recent exhibition. Right. And retouch in a very bad way, like very obvious way. <laughs> Same thing with Salgado. If you look at Genesis, the phases of Genesis, you can see there's a film era, there's like a digital transition era, and there's a modern digital era, and they look very different stylistically. The problem is these were film era shooters, and they said, look, I learned the properties of this particular film really, really well. You know, in Salgado's case, it was Tri-X. In Macari's case, it was Kodachrome. And I work with that. The problem is in the digital transition, when these films are either no longer available or the process doesn't make sense anymore, then they've basically outsourced a lot of the creative stuff to somebody who's doing all their post-processing. That person is not experienced or not consistent or whatever, and they've lost control. And it's unfortunate because they're kind of casualties of this whole thing, and they land up suffering because the work is now, firstly, no longer their own. Secondly, you know, you get embroiled in a controversy where, to be honest with you, it's quite possible he's entirely innocent. He didn't know because he didn't do it. But at the same time, how can you give that excuse, right? Yeah, it's his work. Exactly. Your name is on it. Your reputation is on it. So to the question of shooting transparencies, I didn't do that very much because I was uncomfortable with the fact that somebody else was doing the developing. And I, I've had experiences where stuff wasn't properly developed or chemical wasn't fresh and color was off or the film was half developed or it wasn't fully dipped in and all that kind of stuff. You can't replace the images. You know, at least if you're the one doing the developing, you screwed up. Sorry, that's your fault. You know, that, that's really your fault. Yeah, but I'm still not entirely sold on, on what you said there about if you shoot JPEG, you can't have a style. Well, you can. I didn't say you can't. You know, I said you can, but you have to why you're doing it. You have to be able to consistently replicate it. The thing is, if you say, I shoot JPEG because I like the way the Fuji cameras render, for instance. Yes. What if hypothetically Fuji goes out of business? You can't get one of those cameras anymore. What are you going to do? You can't replicate that look because it's contingent on something else. You know, it's very different from I have shot with God knows how many cameras and you can't tell what I shot with. If I mixed up the images, which I've done before, nine out of 10 people cannot identify what came from what. That's consistency. You know, I can't tell my clients, look, I need to use the Nikon because you've got super telephoto images for some things. And I use the Hasselblad for others because you want a certain, you know, certain dynamic range. And then for other stuff, because I've got to squeeze a documentary camera into a small space and be stealthy, I use a, a Leica Q or Rico. I can't tell them, sorry, it looks different because we use different cameras. Yeah, I totally get that. But then the other side of the argument is why shoot with a Hasselblad? Why shoot with a 50 megapixel camera if the viewer can't even tell the difference? Well, at web sizes, you can't, but if you're printing, you can. You know, if you're looking at full-size files, you absolutely can. But is that how your images are being used? Are they printed? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the other thing is, for me, the biggest benefit of the Hasselblad is not resolution. What is it? That seems very, very counterintuitive. And this, I think, is something that you'll appreciate, actually, is color accuracy. So the nice thing about the Hasselblad is that I spend so much less time trying to get colors right for skin tones, for products for whatever the case may be because the increased dynamic range across the channels means the color accuracy is higher it means that i've cut my post-processing time in half which means more time i can be productive so it pays for itself in that alone whether the client can tell the difference or not doesn't make a difference to me but if it saves me that much time then it makes a hell of a lot of sense you know and that's honestly something which if you have to have very high throughput it's actually worth looking into just for that alone so you would struggle to get the same color and the same look with, say, a Nikon or a Canon? Oh, I can do it. It just takes me a hell of a lot longer. Oh, okay. Right, okay. I mean, basically, my limitation is things like the red channel clips early or the blue channel clips early or there are color shifts or whatever. Or maybe the color is pleasing but not accurate. You know, it's stuff like that. And if I'm trying to color match a whole bunch of stuff, if I'm trying to color grade a whole bunch of images, then 
basically that have been photoshopped shifting all the hsl sliders one by one that's just painful yeah yeah you really don't want to be doing that and especially if you're trying to get a consistent look you're trying to get a consistent feel you know or maybe you've got weird skin tones you've got weird ambient light i mean for me it makes enough of a difference that it would pay for itself in pretty short order in terms of productivity how much money are you talking about for one of these cameras you want the cheapest way in or you want the most expensive way in? <laughs> no, I mean, seriously. Give me the cheapest. You okay with manual focus? Yeah. Do you need wide angles? Not so often. Not that wide. How wide do you need to go? 35 mil in 35 mil equivalent. Oh, okay. Then you're fine. Then Hasselblad V. So you buy a V series, you buy a V series body, you know, the square ones, you know, that start off in the 1950s. Yeah. They will take the new digital back, which has the same guts as the same sensor, same image processing pipeline as the H5. And that gives you very, very, very nice images. I think the cost of the back alone is about just under, I'm going to say nine and a half thousand US. Okay. So it's getting up to fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars Aussie. Right. It may be a bit less in Australia. Right, okay. So you look at the cost of the back, but the body is cheap because those bodies are old. You buy one secondhand, it might be a thousand bucks for the lens. The lenses are all the Carl Zeiss glass. Don't buy the latest generation because they're exorbitantly expensive. I've got a guide to the Hasselblad V system on my site, actually, because I have one of these as well. This was my way into Hasselblad. It was the cheapest way into Hasselblad. And the lenses are maybe 500 US each off eBay for mint condition stuff. What about what you're shooting with now, the H6? What am I looking at? The H6 I'm shooting with now, I believe, is about 24,000 US for the body. Complete? No, just for the body. <laughs> just for the body. The lenses run anywhere between three and nine grand a piece. <laughs> Very nice. That's probably a little bit of overkill for my wedding photography. No, I mean, honestly, I think it doesn't make sense. For portrait work, the V system actually makes a lot of sense because it pays itself off pretty quick. And honestly, the image quality from that will... What are you shooting with now, anyway? D750 and Fuji's. Okay. So I had a 750 as well. The dynamic range of the V-back is probably two stops more than the 750. Really? Yes. And it's not just the absolute dynamic range because the 750 is very linear in the sense that once it clips, it goes, right? You don't really have this roll off at the top end. Mm -hmm. The Hasselblads have all the extra dynamic range at the top end. So it rolls off really, really nicely. When something clips, it doesn't clip in a very harsh digital looking way. It's very filmic. So when you're talking about roll off at the top end, you're talking about the highlights? Yes. Talking about the highlights. Yeah, once I lose them, they're totally gone. It's either there or it's not. No, it's not. I mean, I almost never run out of dynamic range. The new one's supposed to be even better. I've not pushed it under a documentary situation yet. I mean, today was the first time we basically took it out and shot with it. I'm taking it out on a documentary job in about a week's time. The 100 megapixel version is supposed to be even better because it's got the next generation sensor and that thing's supposed to have another stop at dynamic range, which takes us to something like 16 stops. It's crazy. Wow. When you're doing these massive jobs with this expensive gear, do you feel any stress turning up to these jobs or is it just all in your stride? What do you mean? Like, do you feel any pressure to, to produce? All the time. It doesn't matter what the job is, I feel pressure to produce. I mean, in the way of butterflies, nerves, or is it just get the job done? Well, okay, to deliver the minimum, I think that's not the problem. It's how do you do the extra? How do you make the client go wow and how do you satisfy yourself creatively at the same time? You know, that's the thing. How do you deliver something different that nobody else can do? And I think that's, that's tricky. I mean, there's some jobs which you kind of dread. You go, oh, shit, you know what? I just want to get the job done. But those are fortunately fewer. I mean, the first few times you do it, yes, you do get nervous. But after a while, you just, I guess you're trying to visualize how you can push it to another level. 
you know, how do you find a different angle? How do you find a different camera position? What do you do with the lighting? And I tend to run through contingencies a lot. Like, you know, what if the weather's shit? What if I don't have access to that location? What if, you know, even down to what if a camera fails, that kind of thing. Yeah. Man, it's a different world at those prices and, and what you're doing. That's it's incredible. Well, the thing is, I think as you go up, then the expectations become higher on all sides. And, you know, you can't make excuses anymore. It's just it's to the point that I actually carry two H... I've got a H5 and a H6. Because if one goes, then I'm up, <laughs> I'm up shit creek. I can't go down to the store and buy another D750 or another D800. You know, that's not an option. Yeah. So, yeah, so you need redundancy. So you got to double everything or nearly double everything. I've got nearly double everything, yes. Or if I don't, I make sure I make arrangements with local support on the other end. I mean, that's one of the nice things. At least the support level for medium format is very, very good. It's really good. You know, regardless of whether you have any formal relationship with them or not, they do take care of their customers very well. I mean, my experience with the consumer-grade stuff in Malaysia is it's really hit and miss. If you know somebody in the service department, you know, regardless of whether you're NPS or not, you know, maybe you'll get it out in a couple of days. My Leica Q has got some issues at the moment. I was told two months for the repair. Wow, two months? Two months. Well, he's got to get back to Germany. Apparently. You know, my Nikon's generally come back in a week, but I know all of the guys who work in the repair center are now NPS as well. But, you know, for most people, it's a couple of weeks. Sony here is a disaster. You know, when you have non-specific errors, I wanted to send my A7R2 in, and it took a month, you know. It's too long. In the end, I don't know what they replaced. It's too much. It's not a professional tool. You can't be out of commission for a month. Yeah. If you make arrangements with the local rep office before beforehand for Hasselblad, usually you can get one on standby. So you don't always have to carry an extra one. I mean, it's just if you're working in the middle of nowhere or you can have access to an extra one, which I do, then, you know, you carry an extra one. You take it. Yeah, that makes sense. I take it. Yeah, I take it because I've got access to a second body anyway as an, as an ambassador. So I guess it's one of those things where, to be honest with you, I'd rather have that level of support than, you know, something where you're kind of on your own. And I think it's the same case with anything. But at least one thing that's interesting is all the client support managers at Hasselblad are actually photographers. They're either ex-photographers or they are photographers. Like the guy, for instance, at Hasselblad Japan who, who runs this part of the world or who covers client support for this part of the world, he used to shoot for Vogue. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. And I think he still does. So that gives you an idea. You know, people understand that, you know, we can't be without gear for X amount of time. They really take care of you, which is important. Yeah, it's nice. That's good. Ming, I've got to go and see my wife and spend at least half an hour with her, otherwise I'll be in trouble. <laughs> I'm gonna, I joined the club. I'm, uh, I'm waiting for Mike to come home, but I've got to go sort out the remnants of today's shoot. It's been fun. Keep in touch. Will do, definitely. I'm really looking forward to following along. Thanks again, Ming. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. You've been listening to the Photo Experiment Podcast with Andrew Helmich, brought to you by PhotoBizX, the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business. To learn more, head to photobizx.com.